You're listening to The Robin and Boom Show, the place where we engage the contemporary world with the great tradition. Wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, or elsewhere, you'll find us there. And now, here's today's co-host, Robin Phillips. Welcome to another edition of our podcast. Um, So last week, we had Mark Wiseman as a guest to talk about technology and the effect of technology on our emotions, our emotional regulation, emotional perception of others, specifically empathy and emotional intelligence. And it was kind of it was kind of a depressing podcast. We looked at the dark side of digital technology and how on the level of our neural circuitry, our brains are being rewired for perpetual distractibility and our attentiveness, our skills in attention are eroding. And we want today to take a more positive turn and to look at ways, um, steps that you can take as individuals, as parents, as um, spouses, as teachers, steps that we can take to push back against the rewiring of our brains to push back against this culture of continual distraction, of superficiality, of emotional impoverishment. Um, so that's that's what we're looking at today. We have Mark Wiseman again as our guest. And as I said last week, his claim to fame is being the voice that you hear at the beginning and end of each podcast. Hello, Mark. How are you today? Good morning, Robin. I'm well, thanks. Okay, so empathy, emotional intelligence. These are part of the profile of what well-being looks like, according to all of the philosophers and wise men of our cultural pa- cultural past. Um, I'm I'm particularly interested in uh, the Christian sages. Uh, I am a Christian, and I read a lot of of what the saints and prophets of our tradition say about these issues. Um, Elder Thaddeus, he was a 20th century saint. He there is a book called "Our Thoughts Determine Our Lives," which is his his sayings. I, I believe there's his sayings. He he may have written as well. I can't remember, but he wrote or said, if we listen to our neighbor with only half our attention, of course, we will not be able to answer them or comfort them. We are distracted. They talk, but we do not not participate in the conversation. We are immersed in our own thoughts. But if we give them our full attention, then we take up both our own burden and theirs. Wow. So he's talking about the ability to help people to be able to share their burden involves being attentive to them, being putting our mind in the mind of another person and in their feelings. So um, wh- we, we we discussed how this the, these skills and attentiveness are, are, are being eroded. And I wonder, Mark, could you, for the sake of our listeners who may not have heard last week, could you just summarize some of the ground that we covered about 
how the internet, uh, not the internet specifically, but internet and our digital technologies, our, our smartphones, our constant connectivity, how, how, the, how this is rewiring our brain in some of these areas. So our, our divided attention span on, on multiple devices and the, the interruptive nature of the devices um, affects our brains in such a way as the, the, uh, the impact of that continues long after the device has been put down. And of course, one of the, one of the difficulties we unearthed last week was, uh, at least between the lines for me, was that the devices are hardly ever put down. So, and I'm guilty of that as, as well, as I mentioned last week, you know, working on a screen all day and then uh, relaxing with my own reading on a screen rather than a traditional book or interacting with people around me. Um, but essentially, you know, uh, if you're glancing at a text message or a Facebook comment in the, in the middle of your homework or your, your work time, that's a brief exercise, but the, the tentacles of that, the effect of that lingers and erodes the cognitive ability to, to focus and relate. And, and it takes away the, um, kind of weakens your empathy muscles. And as, as you pointed out toward the end of last week's podcast, it's particularly frightening with, uh, with young people as their brains are still developing that they might not, you know, with those of us that are older, we can see some erosion in what had developed, but with younger people, perhaps it doesn't develop that empathy and the greater uh, concept of social skills it might be eroded from the start, which is in, very frightening. Yeah. So that's the exactly. bad news. I'm looking forward to the good news. Well, you know, as I, as I um, ex- increasingly have explored some of these issues, both from the standpoint of cognitive psychology as well as contemporary neuroscience, one of the things I wanted to know is what can a person do to push back against this because neuroplasticity is a double-edged sword it can neuroplasticity can have damaging effects in the brain but it can also be leveraged in positive ways um uh, some of the technologies now like neurotherapy neurofeedback um behavioral optometry some of these cutting edge um protocols that actually leverage neuroplasticity for um, in positive ways. And we, we, th- th- this happens even, every time we learn something, the brain um, is changing positive ways and negative ways. Every time we memorize something, um, the, the, the wiring of our brain is actually, actually changing uh, as we just g- go through life. So it isn't all hopeless. There are things that, that you can do. So in order to understand emotional intelligence and empathy um, and what we can do do to improve in these areas, we have to understand how how this works on a neurological level. So, um, emotional intelligence, um, as we said last week, it's the ability to recognize and identify emotions in oneself, and to use that information to act wisely, but also to observe and recognize and identify emotions in others to be able to feel things that other people feel and to use that information <clears throat> information to, to act wisely. Now, there's a connection here between these two aspects, and this really gets to the heart of what you can do to um, train yourself in the skill of emotional intelligence. Because of the connection between your own emotional self-awareness 
and awareness of other people's feelings. And we can perhaps later, we can get into the neural mechanisms that are involved here. But for now, just take my word for it that the same processes that are involved in recognizing your own emotions are also involved. Those same processes um, are involved in recognizing the emotions of others. Um, so because of this connection between these two aspects, one way to increase our emotional sensitivity to others is to expand the scope of, of our perception of our own feelings. And that can be achieved through greater awareness of our body. Now, emotions are often experienced in the body before we become aware uh, of them consciously. <clears throat> so by, for example, a tensing of the neck, um, speeding up of the heart rate, um, um, uh, adrenaline. These are all physiological as- symptoms that are correlated with emotional states. And researchers have found that simply by being aware of your body, you can um, then grow in greater self-awareness of your emotions. Often you can get advanced warning of emotions that are developing and thus make appropriate choices and increase the gap between stimulus and response. And it's very simple. So just um, one of the things I do, I would just sit and I'll d- breathe deeply. I'll turn off all my distractions and I'll just, uh, I'll just be aware of my body. You can do this. Um, our listeners can do this right now. Just take a deep breath and just be aware of your foot. Just be aware of having a foot and the feeling of your foot. Um, You can do that with with your heart rate. You can begin to notice your heart. And and you can also do mindfulness exercises where you bring your conscious awareness to every aspect of your physiological experience. And by learning to become aware and to tune into your body, you're also developing the same skills for tuning in to your emotions. So by becoming aware of our emotions on a physiological level, we develop the same neurophysiological skills for then becoming aware of, of other people's emotions. Okay, so let me back up and recap what you're saying, Robin. So neurophysiology, this means the relationship between the brain and physical processes happening in the body. Our emotions are partly cognitive, they're partly physical. If we train ourselves to be aware of and notice the physiological aspects of our emotions in us, we'll be better able to notice, understand emotions in other people. That is exactly right. Because by achieving present moment awareness of the body, we can start listening to the messages our physical self is trying to send us, including messages about our emotions. And then we can make wise choices as a, a result. Uh, um, Meng, who wrote the book Search Inside Yourself, he was an um, engineer at Google who became a mindfulness guru. He wrote, quote, there's a fascinating relationship between self-awareness and empathy. If you are strong in self-awareness, you are also very likely to be strong in empathy. The brain seems to use the same equipment for both. Specifically, both qualities seem to have a lot to do with the part of the brain known as the insula. 
the insula is related to the ability to experience and recognize bodily sensations. People with very active insula, for example, can become aware of their own heartbeats. What is really interesting is scientific evidence suggesting <clears throat> that people with active insula also tend to have high empathy, uh, end quote. And so the first tip I would give in pushing back against this culture of distraction, non-attentiveness, is just to take some time every day just to unplug and just be aware of your present moment experience, both emotionally and physically. Just, 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 just to spend some time with, with yourself, just being aware of, of the physiological and emotional sensations you, you have. Um, that is the first tip that, that I would g- give in helping to wire the brain in positive ways um, so that people can develop more emotional intelligence. Fascinating. The second tip um, I would give, and this is something that Mark may have some comments with, is have, <coughs> have times of the day when you're online, when your phone is on, but also have times of the day when you unplug, when you put your smartphone on airplane mode or you turn it off and you're present with loved ones and family members or, or, or books. Um, the, all our devices have an off button. We do not need to have them on all the time. And I think that our relationships can improve if we have <clears throat> periods of the day, even if it's just half an hour, <clears throat> where we are fully present to those we love with, without them feeling like they're having to compete for our attention. Mark? I think there's a, a parallel idea there too. Turning off the screens and turning off the phone and even even leaving it you know, at home and going somewhere else, whether it's a park or a trail or anywhere without it is, is one thing. And I think um, being mindful of the idea that the pace of technology as it quickens, we continually try to stay up with that pace. There's more devices, there's more rapidity with everything, but recognizing that and saying, I'm going to embrace a slower pace. And it doesn't mean regression, you know, as if, as Jason pointed out last time, uh, you brought up the idea, Jason, of progress. Well, if slowing down is regression, then embrace it. But I'm not sure that forward motion is progress either. So it's a false dichotomy, but it just seems like a faster and faster pace is forced on us. And yet we have the choice to intentionally slow down. And I'm, I'm looking at some uh, information from Thomas Merton. Of course, he reposed in 1968, long before the technological revolution that is the backdrop of this conversation. But he observed that if we, uh, the continual noise that surrounds us, and my word, that was 1968. Wow. There were no phones. And he was on to something, of course. But the idea being that if we don't slow down and experience the inner stillness, um, we will be alienated from our own feelings and run the risk of becoming strangers to ourselves and, of course, by extension to everyone else. And yet we can choose, even if it's in small doses in the beginning, to open ourselves up to slowing that pace down, not just leaving the phone at home, but embracing um, something a little bit slower and a different flavor of life. And maybe we're only comfortable with that for shorter bursts of time. But as those get longer and we and we 
genuinely relax and learn that empathy and, and regain our social skills or for young people gain them, um, those, those things can, can grow in the brain and, and yield greater fruit and, and maybe more stillness and more time without devices. Wow. That's, that's, that's really good. I, but it's hard. It's hard. It's very hard. Um, I have a, uh, an article on my, my website where I talk about when I first got a tablet and at first I thought, Oh, I would never, <clears throat> why would I want to check my email or go online when I was out on a walk? I used my tablet as a, um, a, as a camera and as a GPS. So I, I took it with me everywhere, but it's like, why would I want to go on the, on the internet when I'm hiking or when I'm driving or when I'm, I'm, um, with other people, but then gradually it began to creep upon me and, Oh, I'm, I'm at this red light. So I just checked my messages or <laughs> I'm out on a walk and, Oh, I, I find out about this. And, um, and of course I, I, um, I eventually had to take it offline and now I have a smartphone. So I have the, the, the struggle all over again. In terms of practical tips, one thing that happens today is the phenomenon of multiple screens. Say, for example, we might have one or two laptops going on our phone, maybe a tablet, other electronic devices. And that's really compounding the distraction thing. As we've mentioned a couple episodes before, I'm engaged to a woman in Siberia. So this a long distance relationship. We have to communicate electronically because it's long distance. What I've done is when it's time for us to talk, I will physically close my laptop. I'll take physical action so that there are no other screens, only the screen of my beloved. And just these kinds of physical actions say, okay, I'm going to deliberately focus on this point of attention. And I think if you do it like you were talking about as part of a family thing, that we that as a family we're going to set set time to reduce these kinds of digital distractions, then I think that can help in following through on this practice. Well, there are a lot of things that can help with that very good practice. The, the book by Rod Dreher, The Benedict Option, has some very good practical suggestions about this. Um, I think that having certain times of the day when everything is unplugged um, is important. It might, it might be during a family meal, maybe on Sunday afternoons, maybe when spending time in nature, uh, as a family, or perhaps perhaps every night at 8.30, everything gets turned off so that there can be stillness before going to bed. And, and maybe people will find, re, maybe they'll rediscover bedtime reading. You, you know, um, uh, things happen when you're unplugged. Things that are un, unanticipated blessings can occur when technology is turned off. Um, but whenever your period for unplugging might be, it's important to keep it scheduled and predictable, especially if you have teenagers. What you want to avoid is nagging your children to to turn off their phones or complaining that they're not that they're using them too much or getting angry at them if they seem more interested in their phones than in what you're saying to them. Um, so if you've decided to let your children have phones, make it very clear when they're allowed to use them and when they're not allowed to use them. 
Uh, but that only works if you're prepared to enforce the boundaries that you've put in place. Um, and there are tools that can help with this. In our family, we use a parental control software called Custodio, which enables us to monitor and turn off all the devices in our household. And this can be um, controlled remotely, um, even when devices leave our home network. Uh, so it's a very sophisticated program, and you can even turn off certain apps on certain devices at certain times, but not others. Um, and, and so, for, for example, at, um, at night, um, I would recommend that everything is turned off, even if people have trouble sleeping. Um, going going on online is not the solution for insomnia. Now, I listen to audiobooks if I wake up in the night and can't sleep. Um, it helps me to become drowsy again. But I, I keep my tablet on airplane mode so that it isn't connected online. And the same should be true if you use a, a phone or tablet as an alarm. Keep it by your bedside, but have it on, on airplane mode or, 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 um, or turn it off completely. And what's interesting is that many relationships between a husband and wife can be rekindled by this practice of having times of the day or night when there's no technology. Uh, just yesterday, a friend was telling me about some of the struggles he and his wife were facing and feeling disconnected from each other. And after listening to him, I said, look, it, it seems like what you just need is 10 minutes every evening when you put away all technology, when you're not multitasking, when you don't have anything else that you're doing, and you can just be present to one another. And maybe there'll be things that you talk about, or maybe there won't. Uh, maybe it would just be quiet. But you'll have that time of the day when you aren't distracted, when you can just be with one another. And many relationships can be rekindled just from 10 minutes of no actual or potential distractions. And when, when you talk about this with, with kids, when you put boundaries in place, it's important to emphasize that this is not about being anti-technology. This is not about being a, a neo-Luddite. Um, it's not a generational thing about older conservative parents being out of touch with the younger generation. This is, <clears throat> this is about aligning our practices with what the best peer-reviewed science is telling us about the brain. And some of this research comes from Stanford University, a 2009 study they did on multitasking. They found that multitasking goes against the grain of how skills normally work. So normally, the more you practice something, the better you get at it. So if I'm practicing the piano, the more I practice the piano, the better I'll get. If I'm learning French, the more I practice uh, French, the better I'll become at it. But with multitasking, it's reversed. So the more you practice it, the worse you actually become at it. Um, and this, this same study from Stanford had another interesting twist, which is that the more confident a person is in his or her ability to multitask, the more likely the person is actually bad at multitasking. And the study also found that multitasking makes the person, quote, more susceptible to interference from irrelevant environmental stimuli 
and from irrelevant representations in memory. And even those abilities that we might expect a heavy multitasker to excel at, like being able to switch quickly from one thing to another while keeping things separate in their minds, these are skills that we perform worse at the more we multitask. Um, They did a a test that involved switching between images of letters and images of numbers. And the researchers found that those who didn't multitask frequently were better at switching back and forth and keeping things separate in their minds. And those who multitasked more performed worse at it. Um, So, and other skills that are are central to information processing, skills like being able to focus one's attention on priorities and weed out irrelevancy. These are also skills that diminish the more a person multitasks, um, at least according to the Stanford study. And so when um, what happens in the brain, and this gets to kind of the heart of why multitasking is something we become worse at the more we do it. Um, what happens to the brain when our minds are exposed to a constant stream of stimuli, including the indirect stimuli of information potential when we're in the same room as our devices? What happens is that valuable cognitive resources are used up that put a drain on the working memory. The working memory is the part of the brain through which all information must pass before it can reach the centers of long-term memory in the back of our brain and elsewhere. But unlike long-term memory that can hold vast amounts of information, the working memory can only hold so much at any one time. And that's why it's important not to overload it. And information overload can happen without a person actually feeling overloaded since the brain adjusts to the state of affairs by shutting down other processes. Um, Again, think of a computer with limited RAM that shuts down certain functions to accommodate others. So again, this is crucial. Information overload can happen without us actually feeling like our brain is overloaded since the brain adjusts by shutting down other processes. So what are some of these processes that get shut down when our brains are exposed to too much information? Well, study after study has shown that when our working memory is compromised by too many distractions, by multitasking, some of the first mental functions to be shut off are the ability to put knowledge into schemas, to make connections, and to to grasp the overarching narratives of meaning. So in a sense, our brains become lost in a sea of of isolated particulars without the ability to connect these particulars into larger structures of understanding. And another function that gets shut down when our brains are exposed to too much stimuli is the ability to be attentive to others, to empathize, to understand things from another person's point of view. In order for these higher cognitive functions to work, um, including the functions that are necessary for emotional intelligence, 
The brain needs lots of time during the day when it is at rest, when we are quiet, when we can focus on specific mental, emotional, um, or interpersonal tasks against a backdrop of stillness. And that leads into my next tip, which is the value of contemplation. In, in the classical tradition, it was understood that there are various intellectual virtues, just like there are various physical virtues. So a physical virtue would be something like strength, health, um, fertility. Um, a virtue is something that enables, it's an excellence in a thing that enables something to achieve its end or goal. So spiritual virtues would be something like faith, hope, and love. There are virtues of the soul, such as peace um, and so forth. Well, there are also intellectual virtues, things like open-mindedness, wisdom. Wisdom is both an intellectual virtue and a spiritual virtue. Um, um, Intelligence is an intellectual virtue virtue. Well, anyway, one intellectual virtue that has kind of been lost in the modern age is that of contemplation. Um, so especially in America, I've been I've been told the French are better at contemplation than Americans. Americans are so pragmatic that we like things we like to things done to happen quickly. The ability to contemplate to which is slowing down to take a reflective turn um, to um, the, the, the contemplation runs antithetical to the ethic of speed and efficiency that is the hallmark of our machine driven culture. Um, and so, so, but historically contemplation has been understood as necessary for the good life. But it's also, it's also a social virtue because the attentive habits of mind involved in slowing down to contemplate are also the habits of mind that we need to be able to give full attention to persons, just like Elder Thaddeus was talking about in the quote that I read at the beginning. Now, from a, uh, it's interesting, from a neurological point of view, the same neurophysiological mechanisms that are involved in contemplation are also involved in attending to persons and in being able to put ourselves in the mind of another person, cognitive empathy. Because uh, being, being able to follow another person's thought in a conversation, being able to track with them using cognitive empathy, it requires a frame of mind that can submit to a linear progression. Uh, but to do that, you have to have attention. And one way to train your attention is to spend times of contemplation. That may involve um, uh, periods of stillness every day. It may involve times of meditative prayer. There are various contemplative tools that the religious traditions provide to us. And as we um, engage in these contemplative practices. We actually rewire our brains in the opposite way that our technological distractions pull us in. So that would be the third tip that I would give. Develop attentiveness through um, 
through contemplation. And for parents, that means having times of the day where your children can be bored, where they can, where the devices are turned off. Maybe you turn off the television um, and uh, perhaps before bed or something. And your your teenagers, your children, just have periods of time where they're quiet, where they can, where the, even if they're bored, because contemplation, both contemplation and imagination grow out of times of stillness. Problem-solving skills as well, and the various things that are important to us, grow out of a brain that can um, submit to times of stillness. Because in order for the higher cognitive functions to work, the brain needs lots of time during the day when it's at rest, when we're quiet, when we can focus on specific mental or imaginative or interpersonal tasks against a backdrop of stillness. And some of, the, some of the greatest insights I've had, both intellectually and spiritually, are taught come out of times where I was still, even times where I was bored, where I would just let my mind be at peace. These, these times of quiet act as incubation periods for the brain to be a, effective in what it's, it's, it's doing at, at other periods of time. Um, Jason, uh, any any uh, feedback on that? Yes. You know, the role of contemplation, that's the whole purpose of the Sabbath commandment in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments of observing the Sabbath. The point of that in the Law of Moses is to ensure that we are not overwhelmed by practical details. So in the halakha, the Jewish religious interpretation, the, the, the Jewish scholarly interpretation of the law of Moses and how to apply it, on the day of the Sabbath, you're actually not supposed to carry anything, like no money. And you can only walk a certain distance. Um, it's, I forget the exact number of, of feet, but it's something like... Um, um, living in Europe and used to metric 900, about 940 meters total. So you can't walk too far away. You're not carrying anything. You're not lighting anything. There's nothing to do except be with your family. You can't cook, but you can eat. You can read. Can't be work, but you can, you definitely should you know, be reading uh, Torah, sacred literature, going to shul, to the synagogue for the services. And interestingly enough, you can make love with your spouse. In fact, encourage to make love with your spouse on the Sabbath. So that kind of ultimate connection, attentiveness to another person is encouraged on Shabbat, on the Sabbath. And that's contemplation. And in the Christian tradition of interpreting the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is that it's a divine restatement of just basic general natural principles, natural law. So making a precise one out of seven days, do this, do that, very ritual boundaries, that part's not natural law. But the natural law component to that is setting aside periodically time in which we are not bound by practical things. And then, you know, in orthodox liturgy, 
when we get to there's the first half for those not familiar with it, in the first half is dealing with scripture, um, uh, more discursive, but then there's the second half, which is more mystical, and the choir is singing. Now we represent mystically the cherubim, and we sing the thrice holy hymn to the life-creating trinity. Let us lay aside, put down, put away earthly cares. I think we can, this is something that's just found in the great tradition. However, we want to do it as individuals or private households, setting aside time in which we put away earthly cares, observing the Sabbath in our own way. Beautiful, beautiful. And that actually relates to the final tip I wanted to give. You know, you're, you're talking about love on the Sabbath. And it occurs to me that within the experience of physical intimacy, there is a total immersion with the person you love so that two people are completely present to each other. And it's possible to exercise that same type of total presence when we're having a conversation with a loved one. Often when we're talking with someone, especially if it's a family member where there's perhaps some emotional tension, there's always emotional tension in family relationships. The closer the, the, closer the relationship, the more potential for tension there is. Um, that's just the nature of relationships. But often when we're talking with someone, maybe when there are some undercurrents of tension, we might be th- thinking about how what they say makes us feel or what I'm going to say after he or she has finished, or, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm judging their emotions. I'm, 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 I'm in my mind maybe I'm criticizing how they're feeling, but an alternative is just to be fully present with how the other person is feeling. Even if it's just something as simple as, as identifying with their emotional state, like saying, Oh, you seem sad, or or I'm sensing anger right now. Um, because naming and identifying the emotions the other person is feeling, or or even just asking, is this what you're feeling right now? Or I'm sensing such and such. Is is this correct? Um, that can be very powerful in validating someone's emotional experience. And I know that when I've been talking to someone, they say, Robin, you you seem anxious about this, or you seem sad. Just the fact of hearing someone else echo my emotions, that's very validating. So using this type of immersion in another person's emotional experience can be powerful in our family relationships. And so that's the final tip. Just be aware of what other people are feeling and listen to the emotions behind what they're saying rather than just being quick to respond to surface issues. Go deeper and really try to listen with your heart and with empathy. Often we get into fights and arguments about issues that are really just proxies for deeper emotional issues. And these deeper emotional issues, when they're not being adequately addressed or listened to, it can cause surface problems about issues that are not really the issue. And we're out of time, folks, but before closing, I'm hoping we can just do a little summary. I'm not sure I can can remember all the tips I gave, but, but Mark, how do you feel about, about summarizing the tips I've given? Uh, we'll, we'll test your memory skills here. Well, I certainly appreciate 
the last one of uh, being able to um, immerse oneself in the in the emotion of the other and uh, the uh, this will not be in the right order but the idea of of stepping back of turning off devices and even <clears throat> pardon me even achieving a, a measure of retreat uh, in, into nature and into relationships um, and slowing the pace down because our, our brains simply can't keep up with the increasing pace um, foisted upon us. And <laughs> like I said earlier, even Merton recognized in 1968, that was the case. So we must've been out of control even then. So even then, uh, if he were to come back now, he would probably <laughs> explode. Um, so anyway, Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Mark. Um, before we end, we're just going to do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, first of all, I want to thank all of our fans for helping to spread the word about our show to a wider and wider network of listeners. And thank you for all the positive reviews. Now, as many of you know, we have a Facebook page where we regularly post updates and links to our show. And we, But we recently started a Facebook group um, which we're very excited about because this serves as a discussion forum for the issues raised on our show. So we posted a link to our group on our Facebook page. So be sure to check it out, both our page and our Facebook group. And you can use both our page and our discussion group to post your questions that you would like to have addressed on future episodes of the show. Thank you very much. And we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. The Robin and Boom Show is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you. To become a patron of the show, go to RobinMarkPhillips.com and select the Robin Boom Show from the drop-down menu. If you have questions you'd like to have addressed on a future episode, send us a message through our Facebook page. Once again, thanks for listening.